Welcome to Bible Fellowship Assembly Sunday Morning Messages. Today, Wade Matthew continues our series of messages on the book of Acts. Today, you're looking at Acts chapter 6 in a message he entitled, A House Divided. And now, here's Wade. Spiritual leadership requires a spirit-filled servant who is full of grace, faith, power and wisdom in reflecting the glory of God. And so this morning we study Acts 6 and my focus is on a host divided. Although there are many things in this book, uh, in this chapter, uh, this is the one that stood out to me. Let me ask you first, in each one of your homes, is there division? Is there any issue that divides you? Not one hand. All perfect households. I'm amazed. I'm amazed. Well, you know what? If you look through the Bible, it's never been that way. There has always been division. There has always been divisiveness. There has always been one factor chewing against another. First of all, I want to thank the music team for the opening. The songs were just great, and it sure is uh, a theme that we need to focus on, the hope that we have not only in the future, but right now. So good morning. This morning we examine the sixth chapter of Acts under the perspective of a house divided. This underlying theme is one that runs throughout God's word, as I said before. It's also possibly the favorite tool of Satan as he tries to take us away from God or help us not to find God. Now, our brother Steve did a wonderful job last week in outlining much of the turbulence that's going on. This whole book of Acts is based on the premise of God building his church. And there's a reason for that. You know, as is often the case, it's the division within our own house, within the house of God that creates the most havoc. In this chapter, it results in the first reference to deacons in the New Testament. We just went through two and a half years of COVID. Did it cause any divisions in the house of God? I think it did. Whether you say so or not, you know full well that others don't have the same viewpoint that you do. And Satan loved that. For two and a half years, he had us fighting amongst ourselves. Should we get vaccinated? Shouldn't we get vaccinated? Should we wear a mask? I don't want to wear a mask. So many things like that. But there's also a byline to this story in Acts chapter 6. And even today, you know, reference everything that we do today to chapter 6, and you'll find that it fits right in there. The byline to this story is how much humble faith These people had, in spite of all the divisiveness taking place, they stood strong for the Lord. And that's why the things that happen in chapter six here are so, so important. Because the leaders, the apostles, are trying to set it up so that this divisiveness is no longer valid. Finally, we're also going to look at how such examples reflect upon each and every one of us. And so we talk about a house divided. It's June 16th, 1858. 
Abraham Lincoln, who would later become President of the United States, accepted the Illinois Republican Party's nomination as that state's U.S. Senator. He addressed the convention with a closing speech that began with the following words. A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently half-slave and half-free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. And here, of course, he's referring to the Union of the United States. But I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect that it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all another. Now, this is a really good representation of our passage this morning because it's exactly the situation that the apostles face today in this passage. The church of God, I want to read it a little bit different with reflection on what we are. The church of God, divided against itself, cannot stand. I believe the church cannot endure permanently half slave and half free. In other words, you're either with God or you're against God. You can't be lukewarm. I do not expect the church to be dissolved. I know better. I do not expect the church to fall. I know better. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. And that day will come. That day will come when the Lord will unite his church. It will become a church that grows or a church that simply does not exist in the eyes of God. Now that's the way I would paraphrase that. And so we talk about a house divided. As our brother Steve spoke earlier in chapter 5, there were many divisions. There was a lot of infighting. Accusatory statements against who was responsible for the death of Christ. Many focusing on how they might stand above their peers, how they might be better than others. Who was going to be the greatest? Were Gentiles important or should it just be Jewish? The house of Israel should rise above and beyond everyone else. Some didn't believe that. We begin the passage with a continuing piece of infighting, an accusation that some were practicing favoritism. So verse 1 reads, Now in those days when the number of disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. The term Hebrew here generally refers to those who were converted on the day of Pentecost. All were from Israel and of Israel, as the Gentiles at that time had not been brought into the fold. The Hellenists, however, did not represent the Gentile faction. They were simply Jews who were born in other lands other than Palestine, in lands where Greek was a language of choice. They were also different in their viewpoints. The Hebrews were rigid observers of the law of Moses and very proud of their Israelite heritage. The Hellenists were more open-minded and felt Hebrews were narrow-minded and self-centered in their thinking. Bluntly, they had a great dislike for each other and as such were open to any excuse for confliction and confrontation. And so while numbers were multiplying greatly, here was the bee in the bonnet for those who were in the church of God. You know, on the outside, it might have looked pretty good, but on the inside, there was fighting. And as Abraham Lincoln said, a house divided cannot stand. And so the apostles had to do something about this. They knew that this was not the way the house should, should be built. They were aware that the church was to look after widows. They didn't argue about that. 
But rather than increase the divide, fan the flame, so to speak, they drew all the disciples together in the presence of the apostles and directed the appointment of deacons, seven to be exact, as representatives of Christ in this manner. So we'll read verses 2 to 7. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from amongst yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed, they laid hands upon them. Now I want you to take note here that the apostles express a desire to be continually in prayer. And they exercised this by praying after the selection of the deacons. When they had prayed, they laid hands upon them, it says. Prayer comes first and always is part of being before God. But they almost sound self-centered, don't they? They say that uh, they want to leave the word of God. They do not want to leave the word of God, pardon me, and serve tables. Was this beneath them? Well, there's a reasoning behind this, and it's explained in Exodus chapter 18, verses 13 to 27. And I want to read that. I know that there's a fair number of verses here, but I think it's foundational as to why the apostles are doing what they're doing. The next day, Moses took his seat to serve as judge for the, for the people, and they stood around him from morning till evening. When his father-in-law saw all that Moses was doing for the people, he said, What is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you alone sit as a judge while all these people stand around you from morning till evening? Moses answered him, Because the people come to me to seek God's will. Whenever they have a dispute, it is brought to me, and I decide between the parties and inform them of God's decrees and instructions. Moses' father-in-law replied, What you are doing is not good. You and these people who have come to you will only wear yourselves out. The work is too heavy for you. You cannot handle it alone. Listen now to me and I will give you some advice and may God be with you. You must be the people's representative before God and bring their disputes to him. Teach them his decrees and instructions and show them the way they are to live and how they are to behave. There would appear to be the establishment of deacons within the group under the guidance of Moses in this particular passage. Isn't that true? But it says, select capable men from all the people, men who fear God, trustworthy men who hate dishonest gain, and appoint them as officials over thousands, hundreds, and fifties, and tens. Have them serve as judges for the people of the time, but have them bring every difficult case to you. That will make your load lighter because they will share it with you. If you do this as God so commands, you will be able to stand the strain and all the people will go home satisfied. Moses listened to his father-in-law and did everything he said. He chose capable men from all of Israel and made them leaders of people, officials over thousands, hundreds, fifties and tens. They served as judges for the people at all times. The difficult cases were brought to Moses 
but the simple ones they decided by themselves. Then Moses sent his father-in-law on his way, and Jethro returned to his own country. Interesting, isn't it? We can't do it alone. We've been told that in God's word over and over and over again. That's why he sends us out two by two. That's why there are 12 apostles, not one apostle. Because we can't do it alone. Let's just define some of the players here. Because I think it's it's time to start looking into where we might fit into this passage. First of all, it uses the word disciple. We're back in Acts here, by the way, not in Exodus anymore. Uh, Disciple. Through the term disciple, it's used in different ways in literature of the period. It refers to people who are committed to following a great leader, emulating his life and passing on his teachings. Many throughout the Bible were referred to as disciples and others as having disciples. For example, Moses in the Old Testament had disciples. John the Baptist had disciples in the New Testament. And of course, Jesus of whom we speak of now. In the context of our passage, we are referred to as disciples of Jesus or followers. As believers, you are also disciples. To the second set of players here, the seven that were chosen, deacons. The term deacon comes from the Greek word diakonos, meaning servant or minister. The word which appears at least 29 times in the New Testament designates that an appointed member of the local church becomes a deacon who assists by serving other members and meeting material needs. He serves and ministers as needed. Now, this is not all inclusive. I just want to point that out. Okay, you can be other things plus be a deacon. And let me give you an example from today. We have two elders in our church, Bruce Royal and Joe Simprich. They are going to be at Northland Bible Camp in a week or so, and they're going to spend a week leading the youth out there in what they are doing at Northland Bible. They are going to be ministering to their needs. That's not to say that they won't be praying as elders should be praying, that they won't be asking God's guidance and leading in their lives. But they are still doing deaconly, if that's such a word, deaconly uh, work, uh, deaconly work, pardon me. First Corinthians 4, 1 says, Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. So you're not just servants of Christ, but you're stewards of what he gives you on this earth. Okay. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. You are made in his image. You should be doing the same thing. New Living Translation 2 Corinthians 3.6 says, He has enabled us to be ministers of his new covenant. This is a covenant not of written laws, but of the Spirit. The old written covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant The Spirit gives life. And you'll notice when I talked before about uh, a Spirit-filled servant, one of the criteria was that he be full of grace, faith, and power. That power is the power of the Holy Spirit. And here we are talking about the Holy Spirit again. It also states that a prerequisite of being a deacon is to be a man of good reputation full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. 
And you'll note that we read the same phrase in Exodus when we read that passage. So while we are all believers and disciples, not all are deacons. This doesn't mean that you are a lower class or somehow inferior. You simply have not yet been called upon to serve in this unique way. And I say yet. You may be called upon yet. There is no time frame in this. There is no age limit. And don't look at it as a title. Look as it as, look at it, pardon me, as a commandment to serve. If you display the qualities needed, your time may yet come. Be prepared to serve the Lord. Let me put a little different spin on this, if I can. How many of you have read this document? A few hands. Some of you wrote it, so you should be familiar with it. It's called Bible Fellowship Assembly, Who We Are, Principles and Practices. And I thought that in many ways, this sets out exactly what I'm trying to say here this morning. And so just bear with me. It'll be a review for those of you who are familiar with it. It'll be new for those of you who are not. On page 3, under the section Basic Biblical Truths, item 9 reads, that because of the oneness of the body of Christ, believers, that's you, need accept only those names which are given to you in Scripture, such as disciples, Christians, saints, believers, sisters, and brothers. You'll notice it doesn't say slaves. Remember, Abraham Lincoln said that it does not or is not going to be a house that is half slave, half free. You have to be committed. You have to know the Lord. There is no in-between. You cannot be lukewarm. More specifically, as a believer, your name of disciple or Christian is found in Acts 11, 26, 25 and 26, pardon me. And it reads, Then Barnabas depart, <clears throat> departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a year they assembled within the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were the first to be called Christians in Antioch. Furthermore, your name of saint is discussed on page 7 of that same book under the heading Ministry and Assembly Order. The Bible teaches that God has given specific spiritual gifts to all members of his church. All members. Not just the elders, not just those who are now deacons, everybody. He gave you gifts. For the equipping of the saints. You're the saints. For the work of service. To the building up of the body of Christ. Doesn't that sound like being a deacon? So if we haven't given you that title, you've got it anyway. Such a statement is based upon Ephesians 4, 11 and 12, which says, And he himself, being Jesus I'm talking about here, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some to be teachers for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. For the equipping of the saints, that's you. And in many ways, that's why we stand at the front every Sunday and speak on a passage of the Bible, is to try and equip you for what you need to do, what you need to know, how you need to act, your responsibilities. 
With respect to our document entitled Who We Are, I'd like to make two further points and then we can move on. At the bottom of page 7, it states that anyone who accepts God's gift of salvation through Christ enjoys the privileges of being part of his family. Each member is equally valued in God's eyes and has an important place in the church. Every believer is gifted by the Holy Spirit as he, Jesus, of course, chooses for the purpose of building the church. You're equal. You don't need the type, the title deacon. You're equal to everyone else in this church. And you'll note, too, that it also says in that passage... That you have been gifted by the Holy Spirit. That's an interesting little phrase because we are told when we come to know Jesus, when we become a believer, when we accept him into our life, that the Holy Spirit descends upon us and lives within us. There's the proof right there. Secondly, at the top of the page uh, eight, it says all believers have a role in the instruction and edification of the church. So as equal members of the church of God, you have the individual right and responsibility to instruct and teach about his church. And you thought all you had to do was come to school on Sunday to get learned. It doesn't work that way. I want to examine uh, one more aspect here. Verses 7 to 15. So this is the last half of chapter 6. And I'm not going into very much detail in this because Phil is going to be speaking next week specifically on the individual we're talking about here, Stephen. But I'm talking collectively about the church and why all of a sudden the apostles decided they should do this. And yet even now there is divisiveness within the church. It's said that all were happy with this solution to bring deacons in and to do things that way to allow the apostles the time they needed to pray and do the things that they needed to do, teach the word of God. But there's already divisiveness there. And this is what happens to Stephen, but we're not going to get into that too, too much. I want you to notice immediately after the confliction was removed, the deacons were unanimously appointed. The number of disciples multiplied greatly. We were all one. People see that. People notice that. They see the difference. People swarm to the Lord. When we're divided, not so much. Because people question themselves. Mm, I don't know. You know, they can't make up their own mind. Maybe I shouldn't make up mine either. A house united will not fall. Stephen was full of faith and wonder, skillfully designed by God to do his will. He arose and and stayed fast with God. But here comes the conflict, the derision. As the synagogue of freedom ceased, seized him, pardon me, and persecuted him. So verse 13 says, This man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. And finally, how could they not believe Stephen? Verse 15 says, And all who sat at the council looked steadfastly at him saw his face as the face of an angel. They didn't even see Stephen. They saw an angel. 
So why were they so hard-headed? You know, when I heard that, I thought God has truly smiled upon Stephen. What a wonderful, wonderful message for those of us who believe that our faith stands in the strength of Jesus Christ. So I ask you, are we to be a house divided or a house united? Matthew 20, 26 to 28 says, It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. It would seem to me that you have been called. Are you prepared to heed the call? Let's just go to the Lord in prayer as we close. Lord, we are all believers, and perhaps we took too lightly our commitment to you, not understanding that there are many other things that we must do. That if we truly love you, we will follow you, and follow you not only to come to church on Sundays, but for each and every moment that we exist to spread your word, to be your light, to be prepared to do ministerial things for others, to help our neighbor, to help the widows, to help the needy, the poor. Lord, it is so wonderful to have your word and to see that those who went before us, the apostles and the deacons and the others, Lord, were united with you. And that the divisiveness that was all around them could not shake them. We even see the example of Stephen being martyred. Lord, may we be so strong in our belief, in our faith, as to do the same if it was needed. Lord, we just thank you for this passage. We thank you for the clarity of it all. And we thank you for your involvement in our life. We are no longer slaves, but we are children of God. And we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Phil? If you have any questions about uh, Wade's talk, please go to him after the... After the service, uh, I have a message from the speaker next week, from for next week, who has has uh, something to request of you. Um, and I'm not going to name him because uh, that may mean some of you won't come back. Uh, next week, we're looking at a chapter that has 60 verses in it, and I think that the speaker said he may not have time to read them all. So I want to just have a quick question. How many have been in a court of law themselves personally? Don't raise your hands. Who of you have been in a court of law and had to represent someone? What I'm getting at as the what the speaker is getting at as a question for next week is please read the, the chapter in advance. And I want you to do couple things as you're reading it. First question is, who were the accusers? Three questions. Second question is, what were their accusations? And the third question is, how did, the, how did Stephen defend these accusations against him? So that'll help you read, read that chapter, and that's what we'll be working on next week.
If we were put in that position as a deacon, as a servant of Christ, as a believer, how would we defend those kind of accusations against us? So that's uh, the speaker asked me if I, if I would do that for him for next week. Let's close again just with a brief word of prayer. Father, as we have seen the life of Stephen and the life of the early church, we recognize that they were young Christians who just came in to the saving knowledge of Jesus. We pray that each one of us would be in that same company so many years later, where we have the privilege of God's word in our hands that instructs us as to who you are, what you have done for us, and what you would have calling us as your children to a life of service and love with you. Father, just bless us as we separate now and help us to be those kind of people who are filled with your spirit, willing to serve in whatever way you, in whatever circumstances you call us to in this particular day and the days ahead. Help us to honor you and glorify you in our thoughts, in our words, in our actions, in our service, and in just everything we do for you. Bless us, we pray. Give us a united church continuously and remind us that it is our privilege and responsibility to be diligent in the Spirit of God, to be united in our local church in such a way that people will have cause to believe that you are the one God, the true God, the one who holds all things together in his hands, and that as we follow you, help us to uh, be in your hands and be led by you. In Jesus' name and to your glory we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. Come back next week for the next Sunday morning message from Bible Fellowship Assembly. Visit us on the web at bfa.church where you will find our physical address and contact information. We'd love to see you if you are in the Timmins area or drop us a line at info at bfa.church. Until next time.